Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is David Ha, and I am an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at Stanford Healthcare in Palo Alto, California. This podcast episode is a special one in that it is a collaboration between the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in observance of U.S. Antibiotic Awareness Week. U.S. Antibiotic Awareness Week is an annual observance highlighting the importance of being antibiotics aware and the steps everyone can take to improve antibiotic use in prescribing. Improving the way healthcare professionals prescribe antibiotics and the way we take antibiotics helps keep us healthy now, helps fight antibiotic resistance, and ensures that these life-saving drugs will be available for future generations. Today, we are talking about the very important and nuanced issue of antibiotic use and stewardship of those antibiotics at the end of life. As infectious diseases clinicians and antibiotic stewards, we no doubt encounter patients at the end of life in our day-to-day -day practice. That said, speaking for myself and probably some others out there, how to properly view antibiotics and the goals of that antibiotic therapy, as well as stewardship of those antibiotics through the lens of end-of-life care may not always be fully formed or front of mind. Our goal in this episode of Breakpoints is to begin to approach this issue more holistically, understanding terminology, how we currently use antibiotics in the context of end-of-life care, understanding how the goals of end-of-life care and stewardship may or may not overlap, and finally discuss some approaches and tools to incorporate these principles into and thereby improve our clinical practice. I'm very excited today to introduce our expert panelists, Dr. John Furuno and Dr. Molly Sinner. Dr. John Furuno, who I re will refer to from now on as JJ, is an epidemiologist and professor at the Oregon State University College of Pharmacy in Portland. His research primarily explores the frequency, distribution, and antibiotic prescribing practices amongst hospice patients and on transition to hospice care, and he has published widely in these areas. Welcome, JJ. Thanks. Great. And Dr. Molly Sinnert um, is our second panelist. Uh, she is a clinical pharmacist with over 10 years of experience in hospice and palliative care. She served as end-of-life infectious diseases specialist for Optum Hospice Pharmacy Services and has presented nationally on antimicrobial stewardship to advanced illness clinician audiences. Recently, she presented with one of our SIDP board members, Dr. Julie Justo, on collaborative opportunities between infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship with hospice practitioners on transitions of care. Welcome, Molly. Thanks, David. Nice to be here. All right. Now, before we get into antibiotic use and stewardship, I'd first like to set the stage. I'm sure some of our listeners will be in the same boat that I am in, which is that I know very little uh, about end-of-life care in general. Now, we hear uh, as clinicians a lot of terminology used in end-of-life care, terms like hospice, palliative care, comfort care, advanced directives. JJ and Molly, I'm hoping that you can break down these terms for us. Um, can you talk about a bit about what these terms actually mean um, and perhaps also what they don't mean? Yeah, I'll jump in here. I think this is a great place to start. Um, we often hear palliative care and hospice used interchangeably, but it's really important to make the distinction between the two. Um, so while there is a shared focus on relief of physical and spiritual pain and suffering, this is what we commonly summarize as comfort care, um, the overall goals of care associated with each um, actually differ pretty significantly. So patients can benefit from palliative care beginning as early as their initial diagnosis of a chronic or serious illness, um, and it can really be provided concurrently to life-prolonging or curative measures such as preventive medication regimens and strategies like chemotherapy or surgical interventions. Um, so when a patient's condition starts to deteriorate, to the point of um, limited or no benefit from these types of treatments, 
and the care teams typically estimate a prognosis of six months or less, this is when we should really think about a transition to hospice care. Um, so hospice, simply put, in contrast to palliative care, is comfort care at the end of life. Um, so in both palliative care and hospice, there is a focus on patient-centered quality of life, but in hospice, this becomes the primary goal of care, and we begin to transition um, sort of away from those preventive and curative medicine approaches. Thanks, Molly. That's really helpful. Um, I'd like to turn to you now, JJ. Could you tell us a bit about POLSTs and uh, advanced directives? So, you know, POLST is specifically designed for people who are seriously ill, um, have advanced age, or are frail. And POLST are actual medical orders. And, and there's sometimes some confusion uh, between POLST and advanced directives. Uh, advanced directives, which are sometimes referred to as a living will or power of attorney, are actually legal documents that all adults should have regardless of whether or not um, you're at an advanced age or, or have a, a diagnosis of a serious illness. And, and so an advanced directive um, identifies a health surrogate uh, and gives you know, general directions regarding health decisions. Um, and, and the difference, some of the other differences here are that Pulse forms you know, should really be you know, available and easily accessible um, and often are part of patients' electronic health records. Um, or are even their, their paper health records rather. Uh, you know, specifically around uh, this conversation, antibiotic preferences would, are, would be indicated in a pulsed form and not an advanced directive. Thanks so much to you both. Um, it's actually really helpful to kind of understand the differences be between some of that terminology. Um, I will say for many of us, we equate um, palliative care to hospice and we equate pulse to um, an advanced directive. And so that is um, that is actually very helpful to understand. Um, and we'll be talking about these uh, these terms more and integrating them um, in in further discussion. Um, so now that we have some of that terminology, I do want to also acknowledge um, another uh, person or group of people that could be involved in patient decision-making um, beyond uh, just the healthcare team and beyond the patient themselves, and that is uh, family members um, or other, other decision-makers. Um, uh, we obviously know that the patient is the center um, of all of these decisions, um, but frequently family members or other decision-makers aren't involved um, in some of the decisions that can impact the clinical care of our patients at the end of life. Um, could you all expand on this? Sure, I, I can jump in here and, and just say that, you know, I think ideally end of life decisions will follow a shared decision making model. This is patient centered care, uh, but there are a number of stakeholders. And so ideally you want patients and family members and healthcare providers all engaged in the decision making process and ideally aligned. Um, this often isn't uh, the case for a number of reasons, uh, sometimes because healthcare providers uh, do not sufficiently engage patients and families in these decisions. Um, uh, some of our research has also uh, has, you know, has uh, shown that patients are often unable to participate in their own uh, goals of care conversations, um, especially uh, among people that you know are, are obviously have a, a traumatic uh, injury or just a, a uh, rapidly um, progressing disease. Um, they often have not, uh, you know, uh, aren't able to participate in these specific decisions. Um, and so this is why, again, POLST and other types of advanced care planning documents are really essential to make sure that uh, patients' wishes are, are known and honored. Thanks for that, JJ. And I'm glad you bring up the documentation piece. I actually do think that that is, um, that is important, um, you know, for clinicians that are involved. Um, many of our listeners uh, will be sort of clinically involved on a, you know, on a consultative basis rather than um, not necessarily always a, you know, primary uh, caregiving basis. So um, that documentation um, and the availability of that documentation is really, um, is really important. And what I would challenge our listeners with today is to be, as, as you're kind of hearing some of the thoughts that, um, that Molly and JJ have to share today, to kind of think about uh, where uh, where are you? Where aren't you? Um, and where could you sort of integrate some of these concepts, uh, you know, into your into your day to day practice? Are you incorporating some of these components in your practice uh, day to day when you're caring for patients? Um, so thank you for that. Um, the the last sort of terminology um, I, I want to to talk about, uh, quote unquote terminology, um, is is the phrase withdrawal of care, and I think that can get 
you know, that can get interpreted in, um, in, in different ways, um, you know, depending on, uh, depending on who's, uh, who's hearing that. So uh, maybe I can turn to you, Molly. Um, could, you, could you talk a bit about what, uh, quote unquote, withdrawal of care means um, and perhaps what it doesn't mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's actually a term that I, I don't love myself, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> um, so you might hear withdrawal of care uh, when referring to discontinuing life-sustaining treatments like vasopressors, maybe ventilators, or, or perhaps dialysis. Um, but withdrawal, or sometimes you hear withholding care, um, them being common phrases, I think they can be a little bit misleading. So they they can deliver the message of sort of giving up um, when in reality, you know, we're just transitioning from intervention that um, are probably likely futile at this stage for these types of patients um, who are considering this quote-unquote withdrawal of care um, and switching over to a more supportive comfort measure approach to their, um, to their management. So, you know, of course, it, it's important um, to make sure that you know, if we are making this transition to supportive care, that there's a team ready to advocate for those comfort measures. Um, otherwise, we run the risk of um, increasing suffering for, for both the patient and family upon that um, transition. Thank you both for all of those thoughts. Um, I think that's really helpful to, uh, to give us a firm foundation on this topic. And, and, and thank you, Molly, and thank you, JJ, for kind of highlighting um, both, the, you know, the, both the definitions of some of these terms, um, but also where some of this terminology uh, that we throw around on a day-to-day -day basis uh, may be misleading. Um, so that is very helpful. So as uh, Molly and JJ know, as we were preparing for this podcast, um, and I, a very uneducated person in this area, was reading up on antibiotic use in end-of-life care, um, I found myself first shocked, but then immediately thereafter unsurprised at the substantial amount of antibiotic use and the variability in antibiotic use uh, that, that we see um, in this in this population. Um, so I'd like to first ask uh, JJ if you can uh, you know jump in here and comment on some of the statistics, some of the numbers um, with regard to antibiotic use in end of life care. And I'd like to add here that uh, Breakpoints uh, really has listeners from across the care con uh, continuum, um, scientists, clinicians, and others. Um, so we'd be interested in data from uh, across uh, healthcare settings. Sure, um, ha happy to talk about that. And I think, um, you, you know, I, as as Molly indicated, I think that when we're thinking about these end of life populations, they they can, you know, uh, occur even within hospice care. Um, you, you're going to have people in an inpatient hospice setting, also, you know, within the hospital walls in a kind of a general inpatient hospice setting, um, in nursing homes, and then in, in home hospice care. Um, home hospice care in, in, their per, in their private homes, home hospice care and assisted living. So the, the, um, for people that practice in those areas, I think they'll um, you know, probably be familiar with seeing you know, some of these patients, but, um, and, and so uh, the, the, the estimates will, will vary based upon um, often where, where people are at. Um, so we've uh, spent a fair amount of our time uh, looking at these types of questions and just trying to get a, a sense for how much, you know, how often antibiotics are being used um, I think nationally, a lot of people refer to, um, you know, some work uh, that's, you know, from data that are now um, get, getting older, but from 2007 that, that you know, about 27% of, of, of hospice patients uh, received antibiotics, at least one antibiotic in, in the final week of life, um, which, you know, I think was a, a, a pretty high number, um, surprised a lot of people, um, in, including us when we first saw that. Um, when we've looked at patients, and I know Molly's worked a lot in this space as well, so I'm interested in, and and certainly interested in her thoughts. Um, just from a single acute care hospital and people transitioning to, to hospice care, about 20% of patients, or 21%, I believe, um, in this uh, study we published in uh, the um, antimicrobial agents and chemotherapy in 2014, uh, were prescribed an antibiotic on discharge, um, and then. You know, I think this will vary uh, among people who are in nursing homes, again, or in um, transitioning to hospice once they get into hospice. And so um, there are um, other numbers, um, other estimates out there, um, I believe, in the literature. Um, but it's, it's not an insignificant, I guess, um, amount of antibiotic use um, 
and, and certainly warrants, you know, our attention, uh, which we're clearly giving here. So, yeah, I, I think too, um, speaking to that, you know, some of the numbers we see in hospitals or in inpatient units where end of life care is being delivered, you can see over over ninety percent of those patients receiving. Um, an antibiotic um, while having elected comfort measures or, or being um, engaged in hospice care. So as you said, you know, national rate during the last week of life, when we know that there's very limited benefit of an antibiotic being 27%, those numbers can escalate um, depending on, on the, the type of uh, facility that you're currently in. Great. Thank you both so much. That's really helpful uh, to get a sense of just how much antibiotic use and the, and the variability uh, in that antibiotic use um, uh, in terms of what's happening um, out there or what's actually happening in end-of-life care. Um, so let's move on to um, discussing what we're, what we're here for, how to think about antibiotic use in, in end-of-life care. And um, I want to start with transitions in goals of care. I think traditionally as clinicians and scientists, we frequently focus um, on reducing morbidity and of course, mortality uh, associated with infectious diseases. Um, but uh, Molly, maybe I can, um, uh, I can ask you to jump in here. Um, could you tell us how these goals might change or shift in the setting of end-of-life care? Absolutely. So infection management goals in hospice um, essentially shift from preserving life to preserving quality of life. Um, so on an individual patient and also individual infection basis, um, we might still have a curative goal, um, but only if it's tied to a quality of life outcome. So not just a mortality benefit. Um, so for example, uh, if you have a patient and you're looking at resolving a wound infection to manage uncontrolled pain, um, that might make sense if he's, he or she still has months to live. So these are certainly curative um, benefits, but again, not just tied to uh, preventing mortality, but achieving some sort of goal that would enhance the patient's quality of life. Um, but also, you know, tied to quality of life is certainly comfort and symptom management. Um, so in hospice, you know, this does become the primary focus for infection management, or it should. Um, you know, in many cases, symptom control can be achieved without antimicrobial interventions. Um, and the actual prognosis of the patient will also play a big role um, in that decision. So you know, you might have a, a new cellulitis that's contributing to some uncontrolled pain, but if the patient has a prognosis of say days to weeks, there's really probably not going to be as much benefit from an antibiotic regimen. Um, he or she may not even survive to complete that antibiotic therapy. Um, also, you know, affecting goals of care is the patient's swallowing function, which can decline, you know, even, even if they have months to live. Um, this affects the ability to adhere to an oral antimicrobial regimen, um, and it, it's difficult to guarantee that adherence to ultimately um, achieve the, the goal of therapy. So, you know, a, a decision aligned um, with comfort and, and quality of life goals might have to be made about parenteral therapies in that case. Um, again, all of this is this very individualized. Um, that's, that's why I like to give examples oftentimes when I'm explaining these types of things. Um, so we may not opt for, say, a painful intramuscular injection for a dementia patient who maybe is fearful of needles, um, or uh, a patient or family may not feel comfortable with home IV antibiotics, um, or transport to a hospital or infusion center might be too cumbersome for them. Um, so that's sort of another aspect that we don't typically have to um, consider for our healthier population. Um, but as you can kind of tell from this is, you know, the shift in goals of care is not only uh, patient specific upon electing hospice, it remains patient specific and also becomes patient condition specific as their clinical and functional status um, changes throughout their um, hospice care. Great. Thanks so much, Molly. And I am sure 
our listeners are wondering, well, gosh, how am I supposed to integrate uh, some of these considerations into my clinical practice? And what, what I will say um, is, uh, hold on a second, uh, we are going to be talking quite a bit um, about some tools and strategies um, that, uh, you know, that uh, the day-to-day antimicrobial steward uh, or infectious diseases clinician can, um, can utilize to incorporate these concepts um, into their clinical care. So let's move on then to the risks and benefits of, um, of antibiotic, um, antibiotic use in end-of-life care. Um, any clinician, um, infectious diseases um, or otherwise, will be familiar with the fact that um, any decision that is made is a result of assessing both the risks and benefits uh, of those uh, of those decisions. Um, however, like you've already sort of alluded to, um, those those risks and benefits um, might be slightly different um, or need to be looked at through a different lens in the context of end-of-life care and, and need to be uh, contextualized to the specific individualized goals for each patient. Um, so Molly, maybe I can um, start with you. Could you could you walk us through some of those ideas? Yeah, David, um, this is actually where we start to see the collaborative opportunities emerge between palliative care or hospice teams and the infectious diseases or antimicrobial stewardship experts. Um, and I, I was just you know, thinking back, uh, I reminded of the antibiotic stewardship program guidelines put out by the IDSA and Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. You know, and, and there's a section that actually states that, you know, ASCPs, antibiotic stewardship programs, should implement interventions um, to reduce antibiotic therapy in terminally ill patients. So of course, that is going to be a collaborative effort with the um, teams that are taking care of the comfort care. Um, and, and I think this is important because, you know, end-of-life clinicians, they may not have the expertise or clarity on, say, what symptoms are directly related to a specific type of infection, or if an antimicrobial has been started for preventive versus curative measures, um, or if there is a potential palliative benefit from that therapy um, that is not their wheelhouse. And so we, we need to have a group of folks that we can rely on to help us navigate that space. Um, you know, understanding the intended outcomes you know, related to prolonging life or reducing suffering that helps us to align treatment plans. And I say us as hospice um, providers um, align the treatment plans with the individual patient's goals. You know, sometimes all we see um, about an antimicrobial regimen, maybe the hospice physician has some notes um, from an inpatient stay or the nurse gets one HNP and the recommendations at the bottom will say something like continue antibiotics per ID recs. You know, it's really hard to educate patients or families to make an informed decision um, if the only information we have about why this treatment was started is maybe the, the suspected diagnosis or, um, or just a, a blank statement, you know, to continue therapy without any inference into what the um, actual goal was. Um, there is actually some research uh, that demonstrated less than half of antibiotic prescriptions um, from a hospital discharge to hospice care um, had a documented treatment rationale. And um, surprisingly, um, I think, you know, we saw that just 20% were associated with a patient or family preference and only 10% with actual documented palliative intent. Um, it's not to say again, though, that that wasn't discussed. I think this goes back to something that was alluded to before that if you have these discussions, it's really important to document the outcomes of those discussions. So there's clear um, ideas as to what the goals of therapy are for the new team that's taking over, most likely, you know, in this case being the hospice care team. Um, it also helps to um, make them uh, you know, more equipped to um, make future decisions about future infections, because we know infections recur commonly in end of life as we have um, reduced blood flow, skin breakdown, um, UTIs are very prevalent, etc. We know that these uh, decisions are going to have to be made over and over again. So the more documentation we can have to reference back to, the easier it is uh, moving forward. Um, but, you know, as for risks of the antibiotics and end of life, um, 
clinicians really need to be more aware of the uh, potential impact that some of these common antibiotic side effects can have on their patients who you know, might actually already be suffering from symptoms that are related. So for example, um, you know, diarrhea might be pretty tolerable for a young, healthy adult, but this could actually be pretty devastating potentially for an end-of-life patient who already has bowel complications or maybe that are unable to care for themselves. You know, they, they aren't able to toilet. And so they rely on caregivers to clean them up. And perhaps that's a dignity thing. Perhaps it's a convenience thing, um, but it really could be more devastating to them. Um, so a, a good conversation, I think, between, you know, the end-of-life team and the, and the primary medical team or the specialists um, can really help individualize those risks and benefits, um, you know, uh, to put it into, I guess, another example here. Um, it may not be acceptable for, say, a patient or family to trade off something like shortness of breath they might be having from a respiratory infection. Um, with, say, nausea, confusion, and diarrhea. You know, if we give them a course of Levaquin, we might be faced with that. Whereas we could have just treated the shortness of breath with, say, nebulizers and opioids, we wouldn't have had to expose them to that Levaquin. So there, there's definitely a risk imbalance. Um, but again, we, we can't just assume. We really have to have a discussion about it and make sure it's documented. I, so I completely agree with, with Molly here. And also, you know, I, I think for acute care providers, when people are transitioning to hospice, when they just, I think there's a lot of, well, hospice are the experts and let, and I think they can have these conversations or they can make these decisions. Um, and, and we, we do know that, that not, you know, leaving on antibiotics may be a barrier to patients entering hospice. So, you know, I think some of that kind of concern is, is, is justified, but it sets the hospice up for some very difficult conversations about, um, you know, I, I received this prescription on hospital discharge and now, um, and now, you, you know, we're, we're reevaluating that here and I, it, it can be very challenging. So I think just a very kind of open and honest conversation about some of the risks, uh, because I think we, we patients that we, we, we know that patients assume antibiotics are benign, um, largely, um, but the, the landscape has changed a little bit. Uh, more than a little bit. And so I think just ensuring that there is a, a, an, an appreciation for that, if possible, um, when when people are transitioning to hospice will, I think, really help, um, I think, uh, make this as smooth a transition as possible and really, uh, you know, for hopefully the benefit of, of likely the benefit of the patient. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, and it, it is actually something that the guidelines also addressed and that they say, um, you know, overall consideration of the benefit versus risk is encouraged um, based on the patient's personal go goals. And they give that example of cure versus comfort. So it's really, um, I think what Julie has, has said to me in the past, this is our opportunity to have a discussion before we start the antimicrobial versus after that prescription's already handed to them and they're going home and have these expectations. Thanks so much, JJ and Molly. Now I'd like to transition to a patient case that Molly, you prepared to illustrate some of the nuances of hospice care that impact infection management. And hopefully for our listeners, this patient case will be helpful to integrate some of the concepts that Molly and JJ have been discussing. So our patient is Mr. A. He is an 84-year-old male who is referred to hospice for myasthenia gravis. He is currently in the hospital on day 18 of his hospitalization for a myasthenia gravis crisis secondary to bacteremia and acute respiratory failure with suspected pneumonia. His blood cultures have been positive for a relatively susceptible streptococcus infantarius with a history of strep gallolyticus bacteremia three years ago. He recently declined a colonoscopy on this admission and also declined it in 2018 because he, quote, wouldn't want chemotherapy. And of note, this is inspired by the death of his sister um, who passed away in the past from colon cancer. He completed five courses of plasma exchange during his hospitalization and has been extubated. He continues on TPN, steroids, and anti-infectives, meropenem, and mycofungin, as well as medications to manage his chronic renal and cardiac conditions. He also has a history of endocarditis five years ago and C. difficile three years ago. 
His white blood cell count has been improving since admit, which is encouraging. However, his renal function has been declining slightly. On presentation, Mr. A has profound bulbar weakness, is nonverbal, and has a waxing and waning swallow. And he had had a hospice referral placed uh, for a request for skilled nursing to complete three weeks of intravenous anti-infective therapy. His family wishes to focus on quality of life, but still want to complete the antibiotics in hope of him improving from his myasthenia gravis crisis and infection. They do agree to stopping TPN and switching to nasogastric feeding. So today, in terms of the anti-infective therapy course, we are on day eight of 30. So there's three weeks remaining um, of the antimicrobial course recommended by the Infectious Diseases Consult Service uh, of meropenem and mycofungin. But like we kind of mentioned earlier in the podcast, this infectious diseases consult recommendation is static and in the past and at the time of consult um, and infectious diseases has now signed off prior to the hospice referral. So we know the family goals. They are to maintain comfort and quality of life uh, in the hopes of Mr. A improving from his myasthenia gravis crisis as well as infection. So Molly, I was hoping that you could help us walk through some of the gaps the referring palliative care team or hospice intake team might have that the infectious diseases or antimicrobial stewardship clinician could address. Yeah, you know, I think uh, going back to something I said earlier is that you know we can be experts in the end of life care realm and comfort care, but we're not experts necessarily in infection management and antimicrobial stewardship. So um, one of the gaps here is, you know, we, we might not know that three more weeks of meropenem and, and mycofungin, um, if it can improve the crisis and infection, which is, was, which is the goal of the family. Um, or, you know, over the last eight days, um, and with discontinuation of the TPN, um, we see the patient declining. How does that change the potential benefits and potential risks of the regimen that has been um, ordered here? Um, so this is really where the ID and ASP teams can um, can help us, and, and we can collaborate. You know what some of the questions that we might have. Um, are, you know, what is the indication for the use of this regimen? Um, what symptoms do these types of antimicrobials actually help prevent for this guy? Um, and, and does the regimen require any lab monitoring that I need to be aware about? Um, you know, we know, you know, symptomatically, um, he's, he's declining, his swallow's declining, he's um, got some edema, I think, and, you know, are there any side effects that we need to be worried about that might make things worse for him. Um, you know, are there any oral options potentially, or, or maybe what is what is the actual anticipated outcome if we were to stop these therapies? Because I think the fear of the unknown is one of the reasons why patients and families or caregivers um, are reluctant to say, you know, let's transition to comfort care only without antimicrobials because they fear, you know, if we stop this therapy. Uh, symptoms are going to get worse. The patient's going to die tomorrow. Um, you know, whatever that fear is, the more information we have, um, we can empower them to make, you know, a, a better decision that aligns with the patient's um, wishes. Great. Thanks so much, Molly. Um, really appreciate you contextualizing that in the uh, in the context of Mr. A's case. And to our audience, uh, don't forget about Mr. A. Uh, we're actually going to come back to him uh, in a second uh, when uh, Molly discusses some uh, systematic ways to assess uh, the appropriateness of, uh, of his antibiotic therapy. So like we've previously discussed, uh, end-of-life care frequently involves um, a number of people besides the patient and the clinicians themselves. So um, I do want to uh, talk a bit more about how family members or other decision makers uh, might influence antibiotic use um, in a patient's care at the end of life. Um, we've talked about things like the uh, like the documents, like the pulsed, um, you know, and and, and other uh, components of uh, of end of life care. Um, JJ, maybe I can um, um, I can ask you to comment on this one. Um, you know, how do documents like these 
um, influence antibiotic use at, uh, at end of life? So sure, I, I'm happy to comment on that. Um, there, there actually aren't a, um, a, a ton of data on, on pulsed and how, but the, there was a, a, um, a paper published by Susan Hickman uh, in, in Journal American Geriatric Society in 2011, um, which showed the concordance and discordance of um, antibiotic preferences on pulsed forms in a, a fairly large population of, of nursing home residents. And so I think there was there was pretty good concordance overall, but it was noteworthy that um, that there were I, I believe around 32 patients out of or 28 rather patients out of uh, our residents out of uh, the uh, 710 included um, who indicated no um, that they did not want to receive antibiotics, and still a third of them did. Uh, and, and also noteworthy from that study was that you know when people looked at their pulsed forms uh, when they reviewed all the pulsed forms. Uh, about two thirds actually indicated that they wanted antibiotics when when medically uh, indicated. Uh, so uh, both of those pieces are interesting. Um, when when they did a follow up study um, to to try to think about why there was some discordance there, um, it was really just that you know um, that either that sometimes things things will change over time, and I think that that's an important note is that these are um, this is a continuum and that the pulse form can be updated and should be updated to communicate people's wishes, which should change as their um, as they progress in their disease. Uh, so I think that that's one uh, indication, you know, just having a pulse form on file, we did not uh, ever see it in some of our research um, that that was not indicative of whether or not you got antibiotics or not, um, not the specific preferences. Um, within the form. And, and so, and, and just to be clear, you know, pulse forms will vary as, you know, uh, from uh, state to state and, and, and also there's a national pulse, but um, so antibiotics may be specifically referenced on some of these forms and sometimes not. Um, so if, if people are in, in some states and looking for a pulse form and, and, and notice that it doesn't say <laughs> um, specifically um, indicate antibiotics, um, that, that very well may be the case. Um, so uh, just something uh, to note there. Um, despite some discordance, you know, I think these forms have a really uh, important purpose in communicating people's um, end of life wishes. And again, I think if you were, you're consistently updating them and making sure that they are um, uh, consistent with people's current wishes, I, that that's the uh, obviously the ideal scenario and, and can be, I think, very informative when people are making these decisions. So there's also, you know, family pressure. I we talked uh, before, and, and Molly had referenced a uh, a study uh, where, you know, about 20% of of patients transitioning to hospice, there was documentation that the patient or the family member had indicated a preference for receiving antibiotics. Uh, I think there is often family pressure. Ideally. Um, it's not family pressure, it's the it's family's preferences that are aligned with the patient preferences, but uh, we know that sometimes that's not always the case. Family members will 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 pressure, um, uh, and I think we've seen this in other settings, in, in the nursing home setting, uh, uh, I think um, people are probably familiar with that family members will will often push for, for someone to receive antibiotics, um, even when they're not um, necessarily medically indicated because people have, don't have actually true symptoms for, for an infection. Um, but, it, but it is certainly a consideration when you're trying to be patient-centered and, 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 you know, in hospice treats both patients and families. Uh, and so uh, you, you really do want to try to honor their wishes um, as well as obviously, uh, you know, towards the best outcome uh, for the patient. Yeah, and I, I think to that point too, you know, I should mention that in practice, it's not uncommon to see a physician write an order for an antibiotic that is either not indicated for the type of suspected infection, or as JJ referred to, actually not having an infection period at all, um, or writing for a dose that's not approved or a duration that's not approved just to appease family. Um, and so when you start to use these antibiotics that are not benign, um, especially a lot of our patients who are elderly, um, and who are at higher risk of side effects, like say hyperkalemia from a, a, a rogue um, Bactrim DS prescription, um, it, it's it's a risk, and it's also a risk for resistance. You know, a lot of these patients are treated out in the communities. Um, you know, maybe resistance isn't a concern for them individually, but you know, if we're throwing out 
prescriptions for three-day courses of Levaquin, um, not only are we posing a side effect risk to them, but also contributing to that resistance factor. Um, so family pressures, I think we, we have to be smart and um, work from a uh, point of understanding that they just want to do what's best for their family member. So we can inform them, give them the education they need to make that decision and not just telling them no or giving in and, um, and prescribing sort of um, the, the futile and, and potentially risky therapies that, that we sometimes see. Great, thank you both so much. This is wonderful discussion and um, I have to say eye-opening uh, to say the least uh, for me and I'm sure many of our listeners um, to kind of be, again, um, retraining our brains um, to think about antibiotic use um, through, you know, through this slightly different um, or significantly uh, different lens than, um, than we might otherwise be used to, um, in a, you know, in our day-to-day -day practice. Um, so I, I sort of promised this from the beginning that um, we would, uh, you know, that, that we would have an opportunity um, for you in particular, Molly, to share um, a tool that, um, a tool that you have developed um, to help to uh, systematically evaluate the uh, risks and benefits of uh, antibiotic use in end-of-life care. And um, and also to empower um, our listeners to be able to address some of the, the significant complexities that uh, JJ and Molly, you were just highlighting, uh, you know, you know, throughout the, uh, you know, the earlier portion, um, portion of this, this podcast. Um, so, um, so let's, so let's get right into it. Molly, you, you published recently on a collaborative decision support tool to help, uh, guide safe and appropriate antibiotic use specifically in hospice patients. Can you, um, can you, can you expound on this and tell us more about the tool and how to use it? Uh, yeah, I would love to. Um, and thank you for giving this tool a platform here on this podcast. Um, so, so stamps is a framework for evaluating antimicrobial appropriateness and end of life um, for, again, individual patients and their individual infections based on their symptoms that are presenting and their overall goals of care. Um, it, it sort of started out as an educational tool that I could use to train pharmacists that were doing hospice consults um, and symptom management consults. Um, but it can, you know, we, we've seen that it can also help support um, the collaborative decision making, uh, whether it be between uh, the hospice clinicians and other clinicians, or a collaborative decision um, with the patients and families. Um, so when faced with an infection in end of life, it can help determine you know, if those antimicrobials are an appropriate treatment strategy um, for symptom management and quality of life. Um, so STAMPS, S-T-A-M-P-S, is an acronym for symptoms, targets, alternatives, medication factors, patient factors, and finally stewardship. Um, so I, I really think applying it to Mr. A's case is going to be the best way to sort of demonstrate its use. Um, so to recap, Mr. A, he is our 84-year-old patient um, who is now referred to hospice with a request for three weeks of IV antimicrobials. Um, he's currently hospitalized with active bacteremia, um, causing myasthenia gravis crisis. Um, he is nonverbal, his condition's declining, um, and his family has already agreed to transition off of TPN and focus on quality of life. Um, and I'll, I'll uh, just refer back to uh, something we talked about earlier here. I didn't say he withdrew TPN. I said he transitioned um, off of TPN, um, actually onto NG feedings, um, but want to keep that um, you know, positive frame of reference there when we're talking about these types of therapy um, adjustments. Um, but anyways, getting back to stamps um, for Mr. A, starting with S for symptom assessment, um, we look through the notes and we see a palliative care progress note that's indicating the patient is actually negative for any shortness of breath, chest pain, GI discomfort, anxiety, um, not having a whole lot of symptoms right now, not, not in a whole lot of discomfort. Temperature is 98 0.7 degrees. He is overall just described as ill appearing with some trace edema to bilateral lower extremities, um, also being on IV furosemide at this time. 
Um, we do also see from his medical record, or excuse me, medication record, he has acetaminophen and ondansetron ordered, and these are the only as needed symptom management medications um, currently. So, so really what this shows us for his symptom assessment is there's no symptoms that are really directly related to the bacteremia. Um, we have, you know, worsening bulbar weakness and edema, um, but nothing uh, that we can, you know, sort of really directly correlate to that infection. So moving on to T, this is our targets or goals related to symptom management. This one's pretty simple, you know, and this is not necessarily the case for, for many patients, but the family has already determined we are ready, we're on board for comfort care and quality of life, um, but we do want to see him improve if at all possible. Um, so A um, has us consider the alternative treatment approaches other than uh, the prescribed meropenem and mycofungin. Um, so, you know, we, we have the option of non-antimicrobial measures, um, plus it, it's going to need some education um, on the family's part. Um, but we would want to consult at this point with infectious diseases team um, that made the original recommendation because we wanted to determine, you know, what exactly is at stake? You know, are there other treatment alternatives to preserve quality of life, whether they be um, uh, microbial um, options or really, you know, maybe maybe the non-antimicrobial measures are the way to go. So once we get that information uh, from the infectious diseases team, um, I think that's where we can start to consider the medication factors as they apply to Mr. A. So M is for medication factors. Um, what we learn after consulting perhaps with ID um, is that there really is no role for the mycofungin um, since he has no fungal pathogen identified, and we're weaning him off the TPN. Um, so this is not something that was clear in the uh, initial infectious disease consult. So going back again to the documentation piece, here's another area where you guys can help. You know, if you're right, making a recommendation for this regimen, clearly spell out you know what you anticipate to see and what the specific indication is. Um, we also learned that meropenem could extend life, but also has some significant risks and that labs would be necessary because um, he actually has declining renal function. Um, so a dose adjustment um, would probably actually be indicated before he went home on hospice to prevent toxicity like seizures. Um, again, this is not knowledge that um, many hospice nurses or physicians might carry with them day to day. You guys are the experts and, and we'd have to rely on you for some of this. Um, I think one of the other comments um, that we saw for this case was that overly broad therapy um, here has the high risk of causing GI discomfort. And, you know, we know Mr. A has a history of C. difficile um, infection. So CDI is a concern here. Um, and of course, acquisition of a resistant organism would be of concern as well. So what happens if we induce resistance? Where do we go from there? Do we escalate therapy? Do we keep going on this cycle? Um, and of course, you know, we, we kind of know from the recommendation here that uh, or from the referral process that we're going to need some skilled nursing care. So um, a lot of factors to consider here that we need to align with our next letter P, which are those patient factors. So P is very important um, because we need to consider the prognosis, everything we've learned, and then maybe talk to the family and see what their feelings are about all this. Um, so after we have this very hard discussion, um, which is made easier by having the knowledge from the specialists here, um, we learn that ultimately, you know, the family would like the patient to die in the home. Um, and, you know, his prognosis um, we've educated them that it could be weeks uh, upon discontinuing meropenem. However, if we do continue it, um, it's not really expected to improve his clinical status related to the myasthenia gravis crisis. So going back to their targets, their goals, they wanted um, comfort and quality of life with hopes of improving. So now we know that there's really probably no hope of improving his status with this therapy. Um, the only benefit we probably would really see is that extenuation of life. Um, so we can re-educate them. Um, now we come to stewardship. We have the ability to offer you know, non-antimicrobial therapy 
that would be um, probably the best for him in, in terms of the comfort, reduced cumbersome treatments that the family has to support and also the hospice care team. Um, but it's going to require a lot of education. Um, and that has been supported again by the consultation with the specialist. Um, so ultimately, you know, I think, and this was actually a case that I worked with Julie on, um, not in a clinical setting, but in an educational setting. And, you know, we kind of looked at it um, in post and said, okay, well, we know the mycofungin is no longer indicated, but what were some of the other things that we could have considered as stewards? Um, you know, potentially could have still treated the bacteremia or pursued treatment with the bacteremia with a narrowed course of, of oral therapy. Um, if we had continued the meropenem, there's a lot that needed to be done with dose adjustments and, and lab monitoring. Um, and of course, I think what's key to emphasize is if we did continue any type of antibiotics, it's not just one and done. You know, we'd want to be evaluating for discontinuation on a regular basis because if the patient status changes um, or if the goals of care at some point change, then the regimen would also need to follow and, and change as well. Um, so, you know, that, that's sort of a demonstration of how STAMPS helps you walk through and remind you of all the different questions you should be asking um, to make sure that the specialists, the hospice team, and the family and patients' um, goals are aligned and, and we can make an informed decision with all that information. Thank you so much for that, Molly. Um, really appreciate the systematic stepwise nature of the STAMPS tool. Uh, and the fact that it takes into account the risks and benefits of antibiotic therapy, but specifically within the context of the patient's individualized goals of care, which we've been talking about this entire podcast. Um, I think it was really helpful that the STAMPS tool, just by its nature, uh, outlines what kinds of information are needed uh, beyond just the traditional clinical factors that we might be used to seeing. I think another kind of interesting observation that that I certainly had um, was that uh, it, it emphasized and you emphasized in narrating this case uh, through, through the stamps tool is that this is really a two-way street in terms of a conversation. It involves communication between the palliative care or hospice team or other primary team with the ID clinician um, or ID expert. Um, and it was really a back and forth about how do we come together on the specific goals uh, of care for this patient and what does that mean for our antibiotic therapy. And finally, again, the thing that I love most about this is that stewardship is here, what it has always been in every setting, and that is optimizing appropriate antibiotic use. And, and really, you know, the only rub here um, is that, uh, you know, we're really leaning in on the assessment um, and collaborative determination of that appropriateness in the context of maybe different goals of care than we're otherwise, you know, otherwise used to. So, so thank you so much. So the last thing that I wanted to talk about in our podcast today is the future of this area of study and practice. And, and I think this, you know, the future really starts with the current state where we are um, at the moment. And in researching for this podcast, um, I will say as a non-expert, I still did not get the sense uh, that we have a detailed, comprehensive understanding of antibiotic use in end-of-life care. And while we see these, uh, you know, the, these words frequently in concluding statements in papers, uh, I really do feel like further research is truly needed in this area. Yeah, am, am I right? This is a, a self-serving in, in, in me saying this, but uh, I, I think, <laughs> um, you know, there's, I think, clearly a need for um, more work in this space. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I was thrilled uh, to see um, this, this intervention that, that, that Molly and, and Julie proposed and, um, and developed. And I, I think that there's just lots of opportunities to, to better understand um, you know where the you know real opportunities are the timing um you know what, what how, how do we evaluate some of these specific um components of the stamps tool uh to ensure you know best outcomes and, and so i think that there's real um there's still some real opportunities to improve 
Um, you know, and, and it's not limited just to antibiotics. I mean, antibiotics are clearly relevant to our, our primary audience in, in SIDP. Uh, but, you know, I think just reevaluating just how best we improve prescribing behavior, you know, as people, you know, uh, move through the continuum. Uh, so, um, yeah, definitely still more opportunities there. Um, and hopefully, you know, uh, some, some funded research in this space. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, you know, as, as you put together presentations or, or write papers on this, you don't have a whole lot of research to pull from. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the, the research is more descriptive in what's actually happening and, and what the landscape is. But um, I think a limited amount available to show what interventions and the timing of those interventions, what they can potentially do, um, you know, and getting the funding for research and, and being able to implement programs at your facilities is, is definitely going to take a lot of buy-in from, um, you know, stakeholders. So are, are you working with a palliative care team? Are you working a lot with a specific hospice, um, home hospice agency? Um, you know, who on your administration would support this? You know, sometimes, especially um, for home interventions, but I think we have to remember that, you know, our overall goal in hospice and end of life is to provide comfort and quality of life. And so maybe, the dollars aren't tied directly to the therapies, but maybe it's being recognized as a, an excellent um, provider of, of these types of services. And, um, you know, patient satisfaction, patient outcomes should be the cornerstone of, of, of what we do, I believe. So um, finding those people who, who are going to support you is, is really important. And I think looking back at Mr. A, you know, we have some opportunities perhaps to have intervened a little bit earlier, and maybe those are the ideas we take away as um, potential opportunities um, moving forward. You know, perhaps, like I said, you know, the infectious disease team could have been more specific on what the um, indications were for the therapies or the palliative care team when they were first consulted and they saw that infectious disease had dropped in a consult and a recommendation, maybe that would have prompted them to reach out and reconsult right at the start before that hospice referral. So, so lots of opportunities, I think, to explore um, in this arena. And, and I agree, JJ, not just limited to antimicrobial therapies, but um, all these other treatment decisions that um, are very nuanced in, in end-of-life care. Thank you both. And uh, JJ, I, as you mentioned, it may seem a self-serving comment that more research is, is needed in this area, but I think it's an objective fact uh, that we really just need a better understanding um, of the nature of antibiotic use and the factors influencing it in the setting of end-of-life care. And to you, Molly, thank you for highlighting where we can be better as clinicians and where our blind spots might be in the setting of end-of-life care as well as your comment, I think it's well taken on the fact that antimicrobial stewardship goes way beyond just drug costs. That's that's way in our that's really in our rear view at this point. But that said, um, that uh, these conversations still need to happen with institutions and institutional support is needed to realize these efforts. And acknowledging that involvement in antimicrobial stewardship efforts um, can not only influence uh, certain costs, like potentially drug costs, but um, can definitely improve um, what it's really all about and that's patient care quality and um, I'm you know there, there's there's probably some potential here in terms of looking at uh, you know patient uh, satisfaction um, with their end-of-life care as well as their family and other caregivers uh, satisfaction with their care as as this really does contribute to patient care quality so uh, Molly and JJ I cannot thank you enough for your words of wisdom today I know I learned a ton and I'm sure our listeners did as well. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. Again, our thanks to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for collaborating with SIDP in the development of this podcast episode celebrating U.S. Antibiotic Awareness Week. And if it is Antibiotic Awareness Week while you're listening to this podcast, happy Antibiotic Awareness Week. I have been your host, David Ha. And our featured speakers have been Dr. John or JJ Furuno and Dr. Molly Sinnert. This episode was produced by Zara Kasamali Escobar and Rachel Britt. It was edited by Jerlene Shin 
David Butler, Kelly Hannon, and Erica Dierks. Our production team includes Kelly Cole and Anna Zhao. The executive producers of Breakpoints are Julianne Justo and Aaron McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.